Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful and blessed to call you Father. We are thankful for the redemption that only you could or would provide. We praise your holy name this morning, for indeed you are holy. We declare your greatness in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Let's get a few things straight here. Before creation, before you or I, before us, there was God. God is holy and God is righteous. He is without sin, he is pure, he is good. He is, as the angels declare before the throne, holy, holy, holy. The repetition of these words just describing the magnitude of the absolute holiness of God. The fact that he is so far set apart, we can't even begin to imagine. God created every tangible thing that we know. He is the source of of life itself. Hold your hand in front of your face. Do this. It's it's an experiment. Do this. Hold your hand in front of your face and go, if you could do that, you are alive. If you are alive, God gave you that. He is the source of life itself. And he created the world in a complete absence of evil or sin. And yet, at the same time with the inherent possibility of these things, so that there would also be the possibility of a truly loving relationship between the creator and the created, between man and his creator. God didn't want automatons. He didn't want robots who just did what they had to do and could only do what he told us to do. But instead, he made us with a free will so that we could freely love him and obey him, understanding that he is our sovereign creator. In our free will that he so graciously gave to us, we chose sin, didn't we? We have chosen to see what God has done in creation and in his word, and to declare instead, I am more important. My desires and my felt needs are more significant than the will of God. And I will do what is right in my own eyes. And there is no one who will tell me any different. There are many words for sin in Scripture meaning everything from treachery and rebellion, transgression, to lacking integrity and irreverence. One of the more frequent words for sin found in Scripture is one that means missing the mark. 
We find this one in both the Hebrew and the Greek. And I've heard it spoken of before as a picture of one who draws back a bow. And and upon taking aim at the target and releasing the arrow, they miss what they were shooting for. They miss the target. In in our fallenness, we just can't ever seem to hit the bullseye. We consistently miss the mark and fall short of God's glory no matter how hard we try. And this is a fine picture. As long as we remember that this idea of missing the mark carries with it a, a slightly different connotation. It is as if we drew back that bow and we see the target that God has set up. We look at his will for what it is. We know it. We recognize it. And then we turn around and we find a completely different target that we actually prefer and we shoot our arrow at that one instead. Because we never wanted to hit God's target in the first place. That's why we miss his target. That's why we miss the mark, because we didn't want it. In our sin-laden free wills, we displace God. We no longer want God to be God. We, We no longer acknowledge him for who and what he is. In our choices, our thoughts, our actions, the clay has told the potter, you have no rights over me. The creation has become unfaithful to its creator. In another biblical word, our sin is an abomination to God in his holy perfection. It is nauseating to him revolting, like something so sickening that it warrants a physical reaction. And God will not live with it. And he will not allow for it forever. Let me give you an example of the nauseating effect of sin. Last night I spent some time baking you some brownies. Wasn't that nice of me? Now, for flavor, I decided to add just a tablespoon, so not too much, just a tablespoon of poo. Don't worry, I made sure it was fresh. It was my own, so it's, it's okay. I mixed it in really, really good so you can't see it. And there isn't that much in there. Would you like one? What if, what if in the whole batch I only used a quarter teaspoon? I mean, come on, that's a whole lot less than a tablespoon, right? Do you want one now? Would, would that be okay? Just how much poo do you want in your brownies? And as, as silly of an example as this might be, think about it. How much of that do you want in your food? At what point do you throw out the brownies? And and some might say, what an awful example. How could you use poop from the pulpit? 
there, there are some other words I could have used that might come a little closer to what God actually feels about our sin. If you find such an example offensive, I, I don't think we can ever be nearly as offended by our own sin as God is. We're kind of comfortable with it, aren't we? God is not. Let's look at two pictures that God himself gives us of our sinful condition. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Then he showed me, and this is Zechariah talking, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. Clothed in filthy garments. Here we are in the throne room of God. He who is holy, 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 pure, perfect, set apart. And Zechariah is being shown a vision of Joshua the high priest as he is brought before the Lord. This is the high priest of God. The one who should be an example of righteousness and purity before the people of Israel. The word for filthy here is a Hebrew word for feces, human excrement, or vomit. Here's Joshua standing before God Almighty, clothed in his own feces and vomit. Have you ever walked downtown? Any downtown, anywhere, passed by an alleyway and smelled it? And then you look over, and as you're about to, like, puke a little bit, right, you look over and there's somebody standing right there. And that's where the smell's coming from. That's us. Can you imagine standing before God? Covered in your own poo and vomit? Can you imagine the smell so strong that you can taste it? Isaiah 64.6 tells us that even our righteous acts, even the, the good things that we do are filthy with our own sin. We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Even the good things we do are tainted with pride and self-righteousness. So much so that God says they are like rags that have been soaked in the blood of a woman's menstruation. That's what those words polluted garment mean. The filth. Sin is so opposed to the nature of God that he gives us these vivid pictures of his thoughts and his feelings on it. 
And he tells us that one way or another, all sin will come to judgment. Sin is not good, it is not okay, and never should it be considered not a big deal. It is not something to be taken casually, and it must be dealt with. In the face of God's holiness and righteousness, not one sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant that paper clip that you stole from the office, or I'm sorry, reallocated, right? Not a tablespoon, not even a quarter teaspoon. Not one sin will be flippantly ignored or forgotten or just swept under the rug. All sin will be judged. And sin and evil will be cleansed from creation. Enter the day of the Lord. If you haven't turned there yet, flip open to Joel chapter 2, starting at verse 1. The words of the Lord, it says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains. A great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Who can endure it? How dark is sin? Just how contrary is it to the nature of God? I hope we can begin to recognize the utter depravity of our sinfulness before him. Because in these verses, we have described to us this, this army of God, this army of locusts. The cloud of them is so thick that light can't even come through. 
The sun and moon stop shining. The stars withdraw their shining. The light can't get through the cloud that is these locusts. The mountains have turned black with the bodies of these insects. They cover absolutely everything. And they bring with them destruction. Everything. Even the stubble. Stubble isn't worth much, is it? And even that is devoured by them. As it says in verse 3, fire devours before them, behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness. And nothing, nothing escapes them. Nothing of sin and nothing of evil will be left behind. They will not fail in their mission to cleanse the earth, for God is the one watching over this army, guiding them, leading them, and uttering his voice before them. The locusts were a reality in Joel's day. And whether or not they will be actually present in the day of the Lord... This is at least a picture for us to understand that there will be a day in which evil is wiped completely from the face of the earth, from the entirety of creation. It will not be there any longer. This is the Lord's day, and it will be just as pure and holy and righteous as he is. He wills it, he brings it, he controls it. And he uses it to remove sin from the face of the earth. As we read last week in the book of Isaiah, chapter 13. Behold, the day of the Lord comes. That's a promise. Cruel. With wrath and fierce anger. To make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil. Not for the good things that happen. Not for the good things we do. And there are good things in this world, aren't there? We don't deserve punishment for our goodness. We deserve punishment for our sin. and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Who can endure it? If this is a day of judgment upon sin, the person without sin has absolutely nothing to fear, right? So who here is without sin? Who here has never lied, lusted, coveted, or displaced God? According to God's own word, Romans chapter 3, none is righteous. No, not one, just in case you thought otherwise. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. There's another picture of our sin. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who can endure the day of the Lord? Verse 11, he asked that question, who can endure it? No one. Absolutely no one. Now, people might say, like we observed last week, see, I told you the God of the Bible is harsh and cruel. The God of the Old Testament can't possibly be the God of the New Testament. But it's also been said that one cannot understand the good news of Jesus Christ until we grasp the bad news first. In the first part of Joel chapter 2, we are forced to recognize the justice, the righteous indignation of God, the holiness of God in his hatred towards sin, and his complete and unmitigated judgment upon it. We are made to see in that first part our hopeless situation as we stand in our own filth, having displaced God with our own selfish desires, and we will be swept away along with the sin that we so readily cling to. That's the bad news. Before God's righteous anger and wrath toward evil and sin, there is nothing we can do as we sit in our own sinful condition, who can endure it? I almost stopped right there just to let the depth of all this sink in for a week. But thank God he goes on. He asks that rhetorical question, who can endure it? And then he says, beginning in verse 12, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. A restoration of that relationship. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? In these next verses, we are graciously 
brought before the same God that we saw in the first half of Joel chapter 2. The same God who is, according to verse 13, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who relents over disaster. He says there in verse 12, yet even now, at this moment, whatever has been done, yet even now, and that should be music to our ears, those words. There is hope. No matter how far off the deep end we have gone, no matter how deep we have piled our feces and vomit and rags, whatever we are standing clothed in before God, even at the 11th hour, down to the last moment, God is ready to forgive your sin. And to relent from unleashing his wrath upon us. It is not his desire to wipe us out with our sin. But to restore us and to cleanse us from our sin. And so he tells them, repent. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Not just going through the motions. This is not a call to religion or religiosity, but to recognize instead that we have a heart issue. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to your God. We need to recognize that we have a heart issue and our hearts need to be broken before God. Because according to Jeremiah chapter 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our hearts are what need restoration. All this fasting, all this weeping and mourning is designed that we would realize our fallenness and sin before a holy God. And in, in contrite, broken humility, acknowledge him for who he actually is. And turn from our sinful ways, leaving them behind and turning to God recognizing both his love for us, his everlasting love, and what we've done to him. Stephen Charnock, on speaking about mourning over sin and our relationship with God, he said, mourning over sin is a high testimony of love to God. If it be a part of love to rejoice at that whereby God is glorified, it is no less a part of love to mourn for that whereby God is vilified. So straight is the union of affection between God and a righteous soul that their blessings and injuries, joys and sorrows are twisted together. The increase of God's glory is the greatest good that can happen to a soul enamored of him. His dishonor, then, is the greatest misery. 
is God's dishonor our greatest misery, that which hurts us more than anything else. In other words, the one who truly loves God not only rejoices in his love for us, but will have a heartfelt repentance and recognition of our sin against him, a real grief over the things we have done to hurt him. We will desire to bring him glory in our brokenness as we acknowledge the hurt that our sin brings to him. And so we are called to come before God with fasting, weeping, mourning, and rending. Fasting, relinquishing our self-centered desires. Isn't that what fasting does? It teaches us that while our flesh wants food, there are things more important. We relinquish that before God. Weeping in recognition of our desperate situation before him. Mourning in repentance. Rending our hearts and not our garments. Because true repentance is not simply an outward action to be dismissed. Like taking off a jacket or going to church or giving to charities. Things of this nature. Sin is a heart problem. Jesus, in speaking to the Pharisees who, by the way, went to church and gave to charities... He he warned them in Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Where do we stand? Do we stand before God just on the outside? Or with hearts broken and contrite before him? See, going to church and singing in the choir does not absolve us of our sins. Going to confession, burning a candle, or putting money into an offering plate does not gain a person any kind of forgiveness. If it did, it would have worked for the Pharisees. We must repent, bringing God the sacrifice of heartfelt understanding and recognition of the sins in our lives and that have separated us from him. No longer displacing him from the throne of our hearts, but acknowledging him as our sovereign creator our Lord and our King, one to whom we bow and humble ourselves and say, yes, Lord. Even if I don't like what I'm hearing, yes, Lord. Your word is true. The pure and holy and righteous God that he is, seeing him as such, accepting the fact that we can do nothing in our own power to reconcile our relationship with God. We need a Savior. We need Jesus Christ. And, and here's the good news. In his, in his righteousness, in his holiness, how is it that God can judge all sin, 
not letting one of them, not even letting the smallest one get swept under the rug and undealt with, and at the same time show his unending love, grace, and mercy that he speaks of here? How can he bring this cleansing and at the same time show love, grace, and mercy? How can he do both without giving up some aspect of his perfect character? The wages of sin is death, and the price must be paid. According to God, sin must be dealt with. So God sent his son, Jesus Christ. God provided the payment for our sins himself. The second person of our triune God took on flesh and provided a perfect sacrifice in our place for our sin. Mankind for mankind. Flesh for flesh. And God eternal infinite for all of our sins, past, present, and future. His death for our death. As Peter proclaimed in the book of Acts chapter 4, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only in Jesus Christ can we be found without sin when the day of the Lord arrives. When the day of the Lord arrives. Only in Jesus can we receive a righteousness that is not our own. For those who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, God has already judged our sin on him in his death at the cross. Praise God. For those who refuse him, you have that freedom. God has given you a free will that you may do with it what you please. You have the freedom to pay for your sins yourself if you would like to. God has given you that choice. But remember that all sin will be judged and wiped away. Even if the sinner has to go with it. So we're called to repent. And to begin to aim our bow at his target, at his will. Verse 15, it says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, and gather the people. Blow the trumpet, begin to live for him and according to his will. Gather around that you might understand once again who he is. Begin to live for him, living in such a way that Jesus is who people see. And who they hear when they look at what you do and listen to what you have to say. Begin to use your gifts that he created you with for his glory. Put out a call in who you are that people can't ignore. Because this call is a matter of life and death. For every generation, men, women, from every nation, tribe, and tongue, it is the most important call we can ever heed. Verse 16, it says, Consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants. 
everybody of every generation, let the bridegroom leave his room and let the bride her chamber. On the list of life's most significant events, marriage is right towards the top there. And God says, put it on hold. Even as you're in your bridal chamber, even as you're getting ready to meet her and marry her, you're right there at the church, put it on hold because there's something vastly more important. It's not really just life or death. It's eternal life or eternal death. Let us pray together for repentance between the vestibule and the altar. Let the priests We are God's priesthood. The ones who show Christ to the world. Who proclaim his gospel. Let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God. Let us pray for revival. How often do we pray for revival? Let us pray that we would be instruments in our Redeemer's hands. Pray for His glory as as reflections of His everlasting love, grace, and mercy in our own lives. That we show that to the world around us, forgiving as we have been forgiven. So that when people look at us, they wouldn't say, Where is their God? But instead, I see Christ in you. Let that be the target that we shoot for. If this morning you've recognized the utter depravity of your sin and you have not received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, come talk to me afterwards if you'd like to receive him. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian today and you recognize the utter depravity of our sin, let us be humbled before our God and eternally grateful for what he's given us in his son Jesus Christ. Shine. Let's take that out to the world so that they too can know and understand the bad news and the good news and come to the Lord Jesus as their Savior. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would take Alden Union Church, you'd take this body of believers and you would use us. Father God, we pray for a revival in our own hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would not let us be satisfied, not let us be content or at ease but Lord you'd you'd live in us by your Holy Spirit you'd be that fire in our hearts that fire in our souls that would send us out within our soil within that sphere of influence lives that we have that we would claim not just talk about or share but proclaim the truth of who you are and what you've done for us We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice upon the cross in our place. We praise your holy name that you took perfection and gave it up for us. You took all the weight of our sins upon your shoulders. 
and paid the price for our transgressions. So we praise your holy name this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.